It's a very good afternoon. It is Niall Boylan, which you're right to, to about one o'clock. We've a lot to get through today, including, by the way, I do want to talk about the people before profit bill, which was defeated. The government were defeated, should I say, last night, and they were defeated drastically. Uh, 74 votes to 61 to amend Ireland's abortion laws. I want to get your thoughts on that, of course. To amend the laws means taking away the three-day waiting period. And it also means as well that it could mean abortion up to what they call fetal viability. There is no real definition of that. It may also take the criminalisation away from doctors, doctors who decide, by the way, uh, to perform a termination of pregnancy outside the realms of the legislation. So really and truly, it looks like a bit of a free-for-all to, in some people's minds. But pro-choice say it's not. Pro-life say it is. We will be talking to pro-life a little bit later on. But I want to get your thoughts. The number is 85 55 That's 85 55 Now, the first thing I want to get to is direct provision. There has been numerous calls uh, for to change the direct provision system. In other words, the direct provision system that we currently have at the moment is just unworkable. We see constantly all the time people on the streets in tents and in bad conditions. So joining me to talk about it is John McGurk, the journalist, and also On Chance, who's the chairperson of the ATPI Abolish Direct Provision campaign. You're both very welcome, gentlemen. Yeah, thank you very much, Niall. Thanks, um, Niall. Let's first of all, uh, Owen, I want to go to you. In relation to the conditions people are living in, I can remember going back five or six years ago and we were all in a panic. We were talking in the media about five or 6,000 people in direct provision. Initially, at the very start, when direct provision started back in the early part of 2000, it was meant as a temporary measure to deal with the problem that we had and the influx of people into Ireland. For the first time, really, we had that influx of people into Ireland. Now we have a system that's fallen apart at the seams. We've over 20,000 people in direct provision, and that's not including the amount of uh, Ukrainian people who are now fleeing war here in Ireland. So altogether, nearly 100,000 people looking for somewhere to live. Most don't have anywhere to live. It's temporary accommodation or bad conditions. But from the people that you've spoken to, what sort of conditions are they living in? Okay, so basically the current situation of direct provision. So our campaign is about five years, I'd say six years old, and we have not seen this sort of, what must I say, inhumane conditions in which the government is allowing asylum seekers to be welcome to Ireland in, especially those in the international protection system. And you, if you look at the city west, for example, recently we've seen some photos of families sleeping on the floor, you know, asylum seekers being assaulted in city west and this kind of stuff. So in, in terms of our position is that the system currently is not fit for purpose and the government needs to end it or abolish it and develop a system that was outlined in the white paper by Minister Roger Gorman. At the interception, well, of well, that, well, that, well, that's that. What was outlined by Roderick O'Gorman was promised for 2023. Uh, this was the the front door key by six weeks and all that kind of stuff. That's not going to happen, Owen. And you can clearly see in the crisis we're currently in now, which has been exasperated, of course, by the people coming from Ukraine. That's not going to happen. And if it's and if it does happen, it's an absolute miracle because I don't know where they're going to get the accommodation for. Currently, at the moment in Ireland, forty percent of hotel rooms are taken up with refugees uh, from different parts of the world. So I think you'll accept. That's not going to happen in 2023, as promised. Yeah, well, we already announced on our social media and to our supporters that it's not possible because the white paper did say that by now we should have six, I think, six reception centers. And we don't have reception centers because basically the Green Party went the way of using hotels and not building on public lands. You know, So we don't think that our provision can end overnight. There must be a process. It's a long process to end in this appalling system. 
but it must begin with a proper reception system. Now we don't have a proper reception system. We have people sleeping in tents. Uh, we don't have cases being processed in a timely manner because when direct provision was created in 1999, all cases should be processed within six months and they're not being processed. There are people two years in direct provision and their case is not being processed. I mean, let me go to John. John, no matter what side of the argument you happen to come from, the idea of people sleeping in tents or in bad conditions, no matter where they happen to come from, whether you believe they're bogus, whether you believe they're genuine refugees, whether you believe their case is genuine, it's unacceptable to treat people like that. To, you know, somebody who comes into the country we, and we some could be genuine and say, here's 25 quid in a tent. We are treating people absolutely appallingly. I mean, it might surprise uh, some of your listeners to hear me agreeing with Owen. I don't agree with him on everything. I'm sure we'll come to the disagreement. But I, I'll give you a couple of examples. In East Wall, before Christmas, there were protests, as, as your listeners will know, about the asylum centre there, the uh, the accommodation centre that's a, a disused ESB building. My colleague Fatima Gunning actually went, went into that building. She spoke to residents in it. So there you have people living in cubicles that don't reach the ceilings. You have communal showers with 16 and 15 year old girls living with older men, which and I'm not implying at all any any malfeasance on behalf of those older men, but it's not the kind of comfortable situation most 16 or 15 uh, no, It doesn't provide privacy or dignity. Yeah, okay. Um, in, in, in Clare this week, in Inch, we see people being forced into a centre that's a disused hotel where we're told that up to six people will be accommodated per room on bunk beds. Nobody listening to this programme would want to live in those conditions. So I agree entirely that the conditions inside direct provision centres are inhumane, that it's unacceptable and we shouldn't be doing it. However, where where I diverge from Owen is he's talking about, I heard him mention there, I think purpose-built accommodation on public lands. That's just not a viable uh, option for a number of reasons. Number one, the government is already spending a couple of billion having builders and fitters retrofit existing homes for electricity. It's spending another billion uh, rebuilding mica homes in Donegal. It's spending another five or six billion building 20,000 affordable homes a year for the next few years. We don't, Apart from anything else, we don't have the builders, plumbers and bricklayers to accomplish that. So that's just not a feasible... Well, okay, um, well, we'll address feasible the other approach. point he made. The other point he made is in relation to the system itself. You know, people in direct provision for 8 to 12 years in some cases. We should have a system whereby many other countries have a system whereby when you come to Ireland, you apply for asylum, you go to a system, and within a reasonable amount of time, you are assessed and your case is assessed, mm -hmm. and you're not hanging around waiting for it. Uh, and, not, and, what, and what's more, and this is something where there should be agreement uh, on all sides, but I suspect there isn't. If your case has been rejected, you should be processed and sent back to where you came from. We have a report on our website this morning that says 15% of deportation orders over the last five years have actually been enforced. We learned this week um, in, in, I think it was the Irish Times, that when, when somebody's case is actually processed, which can take years after all the appeals, in I think 15% of cases that sorry, 15% of cases where there's been a rejection, people are allowed to stay anyway on, on humanitarian grounds. So that isn't actually a rejection. You're getting to stay in the country even though your asylum application has been rejected. And all of those people are taking up space, often in direct provision and in accommodation centres, for people who may be legitimate refugees whose case hasn't been processed yet, who are in turn sleeping on the street. So the system is not working. I hope we would all agree that there is a process and a law which is respected, which is you come to the country, you make your asylum application. If it's accepted, well done, you know, congratulations, it should be accepted, and then there should be a path and you're moved on 
into society and given uh, the opportunity to work and earn a living and build a life and all the rest mm. of it. But if it's rejected, you shouldn't still be here. Okay, well, well, own, we have well, loads well, hang of people on. who are still here who, who shouldn't be here because they've had deportation orders that no one well, is forced to get. Well, I've been informed of deportation orders are voluntary. In other words, you're handed a deportation order and you're kind of told, would you no, like no, to no, leave? No, 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 Niall, I think you need to rephrase that. Deportation orders are not voluntary. What we are doing, though, is, is, is allowing people to decide themselves whether they're enforced. If you have a deportation order, you are legally no longer welcome in the country. Well, did I not hear it mentioned in the Rochester during the week when they were asked in the Rochester during the week how many people were deported? They said it was a voluntary system. They didn't really have the numbers, but they said, I think it was 135 or something last year, whatever it happened to be, wherever the figure was, don't quote me. But the fact that it's a voluntary system is a disgrace is the point that I'm Well, it is. But okay, the deportation order isn't isn't voluntary. It's it's just the state is allowing people to decide whether the law applies to them. Okay. In relation to what John is saying, so he's agreeing with you. We're all agreeing the system is broken. We're all agreeing the conditions are inhumane. You can see the conditions, actually. We have a video there. You can see the conditions in them, which are appalling. So when, and as John points out, people who are not genuine, who are coming from a country that is a safe country, where their lives are not in danger, are taking the place of people who genuinely need assistance and support and help. And they should be deported, as they would be in most countries in the world. Is that a fair suggestion, Owen? Okay, so first of all, according to the Geneva Convention, we can't use terms like genuine or legitimate refugees. Basically, a person asylum is accepted or is not accepted. When is unaccepted in terms of what John is saying about deportation, what the Department of Justice normally do is they send a letter saying that their application is rejected and you should be deported. Okay, the person can leave the country, but most times the person don't leave the country. And it's up to Garda or the Department of Justice to enforce that. If they fail to enforce that, then the person is not in wrong. So because that provision was supposed to basically be for six months, if you're in the country for 12 years, you can apply for the minister discretion. And in most cases, the minister accepts if the person don't have a criminal record. In, in terms of our campaign, we support deportation only if a person commits a crime. But if someone is incarcerated in that provision more than six months than it was intended to be... Okay, well, but, okay be well, 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 hang on. Let me interject there just for a second. So you support deportation, but only if a person commits a crime. But do you not, exactly. support, but do you not support deportation if a person is not... I don't know you don't like the term legitimate, but I mean, in my view, you're either a legitimate asylum seeker and you, you fit the criteria according to the convention, or you don't. In other words, you're an economic migrant. And, you know, Ireland, of course, is a small country, geographically, with a small economy. Uh, it's a good economy, thankfully, but it's a small economy. We cannot be the answer to the problems of the world where other countries have economic problems. So as much as we would love to help everybody have a better life, that can't be the case because we're firstly in the middle of accommodation crisis and a housing crisis, so we don't have the accommodation. So realistically, if you're not genuine, if, you're not, if you don't fit the criteria as set out by the convention as an asylum seeker, well, then surely you should be deported. Surely that is the way it works. That's the system. That's our immigration laws. Do you not accept that? Okay, so right now we don't, we don't have a proper international protection system. If we had a proper international protection system, if you want to classify someone as an economic migrant, then process their case within three months and put them in a center or something. Like, for example, in some European countries, when your case is rejected, I think it's Denmark or Sweden, you're placed in a detention center to be deported. Okay. Now, if you're claiming that these claims are not legitimate, as we can see in a lot of newspaper reports that people are destroying their documents and these kind of stuff, then hire the staff instead of paying RMR millions of dollars, hire staff, process these claims within three months, 
And if you find that their claims do not reach the criteria, then you can implement the deportation. But most of the time, you can't keep people 17 years, two years in that provision. No, no, I, 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 no, I think we all accept mm -hmm. that. But as long as we all accept, too, that those who are not or don't fit the criteria under the convention should be swiftly dealt with and swiftly deported, of course, because they are, as John rightly said, taking the place of somebody who is genuine. Now, you mentioned, of course, you know, the false documents. And I have before me the figures here, say, for the last four months in relation to false documents. And it seems a vast amount of people are coming to Ireland with either no documents, false document, or they class them as imposters. In other words, they're people who claim they're children who are not children. Uh, they claim they're minors and they're probably not minors or whatever it happens to be. Explain to me uh, and our listeners why you think people do that. They get on a plane in whatever country or, or, or port it happens to be, and then they destroy the documentation on the plane and get off the plane again. It seems to be happening a lot. So why do you think that happens? First of all, I don't know the nationalities of those persons that are that are supposedly destroying their documents. But as we have mentioned many times, it's not illegal to seek asylum. Okay, you don't need a document to seek asylum, according to the Geneva Convention. Again, and most of the time, these people might be in fear of their life. You know, let's say for example, they're coming from a regime like Afghanistan, where the Taliban is notorious. They don't want their identity getting back to the Taliban. They might use a false document, which is legal according to the convention to enter Ireland. And the government has a right to process their case in a timely manner. So I mean, it's not how you okay. enter, it's if your case is processed in a timely manner. John, do, do you accept that if people are destroying their documentation, which we're hearing a lot of in the news, that they're destroying it out of fear? i.e. they may be coming from places like Albania or Georgia and not Afghanistan, and they feel that if they don't, or if they provide the genuine documentation, they would be processed and sent home too quickly, so they do it out of fear. Would you accept that, John? I, am, I would accept there are certainly cases where that happens. And, but here's the thing. This is, this is really important, because in Ireland, Owen mentioned the uh, Geneva Conventions, but in Ireland we have the 2004 Immigration Act, which regulates this under law and says that if you present at an Irish port of entry, either whether it be Rossley Airport, Dublin Airport, Shannon, wherever it is, with no valid travel documents, then you have committed an indictable crime under Irish law, which is punishable by either a €3,000 fine and or 12 months in prison at the higher end. And, so the, airline, is, and the airline also gets a fine too for allowing yes, it to happen. This is a prima facie crime. And in in the uh, and I, I'm going to say in a moment, I think it should be a crime because if there are genuine cases, if you are fleeing the Taliban, then I think taking that chance when there's a crime in Ireland is something you might still be prepared to do. But the fact that it's not being enforced means that if you are, for example, from Georgia or Moldova and you just want a better life and you know that you're not going to be punished for destroying your documents, then there's no disincentive to doing that. So I would say, Niall, that if, if, if Irish politicians had any other law, let's imagine that there were speeding cases and we had 8,000 of them in the last year and one prosecution, that would be a national scandal that everyone would be calling on the Minister for Justice to resign for. We have had, in the case of this law with no documents, about 8,000 cases over the last four years and one prosecution. One person has been prosecuted for breaking the law. We are the only country in the world that I know of which actually rewards people for breaking the law. So you come here... You have broken the law. You have no documents. What does the government do? It says we are going to uh, bring you into the uh, into the my, the asylum and and um, uh, 
protection application system. We're going to put you up somewhere for the next couple of months on the state's dime. And and this is where I want to pivot back to agreeing with Owen. Because if you are here six, eight, ten months, 12 years, whatever it is on that system, then of course it's inhumane to deport you. The fact that we don't have we have all these people coming in, and it is incredibly unfair both to legitimate migrants and to the actual population that people are living for so long in this system. We should have a dedicated border force that's well-resourced. Um, we should have a dedicated court that processes these claims. We should cut down on the number of appeals, because at the moment you go refugee appeals tribunal, uh, court, Supreme Court, European Court. The 12 years can just be the legal appeals. We should have a court like the Court of Appeals, which is one and done, that 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 deals with these Quickly and efficiently, and well, gets people well, out of the well, country. But I don't know. But I don't think I would accept that. Deserve asylum into the country. Yeah. Oh, can, you, I, can I have oh, a point about yeah, Georgia well, and Albania? Can I well, have well, a point about well, well, before you do that, just address what John said. One and done. In other words, we should have a special court, similar to the special criminal court, that deals directly just with this situation. That you go in there, you appeal your case, the judge decides yay or nay based on the evidence given to him. And if it's nay, you get deported. If it's yay, you get to stay. Would you accept that, Owen? Is that, it, that would be a quick and more efficient system. But that, that idea or that theory has been rejected by campaigners uh, who um, obviously represent asylum seekers in Ireland on a regular basis. So would you accept that system? Well, first of all, we represent asylum seekers as well. And how we get our decisions is by conference, you know. And one of the things about this case and the process and so on is that there is no system, there's no structure in this asylum system right now in Ireland. You know, I think in 2015, we we passed the International Protection Act, and that is not being implemented in terms of the reception center that the act implemented. No, no, but I, so, I, I, I don't want to go back over that. I'm asking you just a simple question. We're, we're both, we're all in agreement that the system takes too long and that if somebody's here 12 years waiting, of course the minister should allow them to stay at that stage. They've made a life here. So that needs to stop. We need to process people very quickly to be fair to people. There is an abundance of appeals to you know, the criminal or the, cent- the circuit court, then to the high court, then to the Supreme Court, then to the European Courts of Justice or whatever it happens to be. Numerous amounts of cases continue to go on like that. And very few people actually ever get to the end of the journey and they end up in direct provision for years. If we want to fast track the system and be fair to people, John is suggesting a special court that sits that basically deals with the appeals. And if you get rejected, you're going home. If you don't get rejected and, and the, the judge sees enough evidence that you were genuine, well, then you get to stay and the state supports you or helps you in whatever way possible. Would you agree with that system, which would be quicker? Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion that we have a special court. Uh, I think that is a good suggestion. Also, the legal aid has to be provided upon arrival. Now we have a case where there's no proper legal aid Asylum seekers are getting okay. when they come to Ireland. You know, okay, let me let, let me deal with sense? let me deal with the next aspect because I, I don't want to keep you gentlemen too long. The majority of Irish people, according to a Red Sea poll last week, and Red Sea, of course, is credible in this country. Seventy five percent of Irish people believe we have taken in too many refugees. I think a blind man on a galloping horse at this stage would realise that we have gone too far because we cannot handle what we've what we've accepted. Would you accept, Owen, that we have taken too many refugees? Well, taken is a term you can't put with the convention because you can't put a limit on the number of refugees that comes to a country. You know, like, for example, well, you can, maybe well, you can put a limit on it. But if you don't, if you can't treat those people, and here we are today talking about treating people properly, if we don't have the resources, the services, the accommodation and the money to treat people properly, why would you allow people in? It's like having a gig in a big venue and letting too many people in the door, which becomes unsafe. Yeah, but as a signatory to the convention, you can't just say you're closing your border. 
you know, you must have a proper system to process the case in a timely manner, which Ireland is not doing. So it's not about taking refugees. You know, like 20 years ago in Kosovo, when the Kosovo War, we took maybe about a thousand refugees. Now with the Ukrainian War, there's over 70,000 Ukrainians, which is different from the, the convention. We accept Ukrainians because of the EU directive, but international protection applicant, we can't just say, okay, no international protection applicant. John, John, would you accept that the convention doesn't allow us, and, and this has been said by Michal Martin already, he believes that we are not legally allowed to say, sorry, the door is closed, even though Leo Varadkar suggested yeah, but, it over a month ago. it's a red herring. It's, it's, it's a red herring. And I, I, he, he, Owen is right, and Michal Martin is right. The Geneva Conventions do not permit us to turn people away. But there is a difference between not turning people away and doing what this government has done. So, I mean, many of your listeners, I suspect now, will be familiar with Radical Gorman's decision, his disgraceful decision to announce that refu- uh, sorry, uh, international protection applicants in Ireland would get their own door accommodation within six months, and then to broadcast that on social media in, I think, 72 languages around the world and put money behind it to advertise it to people so that they could come here. And not only was that a pull factor, it was also a lie. So he's brought a load of people here in hope from around the world who convinced them to come to Ireland Wonderful. so they get their own door and instead... And instead, they're living in a hotel in in, in Clare where nobody wants them and there isn't a shop within three miles. So so that's a disgrace, first of all. Secondly, we have, um, we have just continuously created these pull factors for immigration because a good asylum system, a good, I think everyone would agree on this, a good asylum system would be one that says to a gay person in Afghanistan or a woman in Afghanistan under the Taliban where the penalty might be death, come here, you can live your best life. But we have an asylum system that very often seems to be saying to people in parts of the world that are second world. So they're not in any immediate danger in a country like Tunisia, for example, or Albania, as we mentioned, or Georgia, Moldova. They're just just a little bit poorer. Come here, claim asylum. And, you know, the worst thing that will happen is that you spend two or three years or maybe 12 years in an asylum system. But then there'll be lots of people who say, well, you're here so long anyway that you should just be allowed to stay and you'll eventually get a better life. That is not an asylum system. That is an assi- a system that has been set up to allow people. And by the way, I want to be very clear on this. I don't blame anybody for taking advantage of it. If I was in one of those countries and I wanted a better life, I would probably do the same. Lots of Irish people went to the United States and tried to do the same. There are lots of Irish people living illegally in the United States. I think they should be deported home too, by the way. But we as a country have to act in the best interests of the people already here and those who are in genuine need of asylum. And having a system that allows people to take advantage and actively draws them here into this life that the Roderick O'Gorman is telling them on the internet they have their own house, then they get here and they end up in a shed in Longford. That is a disgrace. And on the basis of it alone, this government has no basis remaining in office. I I actually agree with a lot of what Owen has said today, far more probably than, than your listeners might have expected. This system needs to be reformed. It needs to be faster for those who are in it, and it needs to be much harsher on those who are trying to take advantage of it. It needs to be faster. But none of that. I, I, well, so I think we're all nearly in agreement on that it needs to be a better system. It needs to be a more rigorous system. It needs to be a more efficient system. But I think the one thing we're disagreeing on, and I think you and John will disagree on, that those who are not genuine, again, I don't, you know, I know you don't like the word genuine yeah, and legitimate. Not, not genuine. But those, <laughs> but those, those, who those applications have been rejected. Well, Can we use those that? Who's a, yeah, I think that's okay. So those whose applications have been rejected, 
need to go home or go back to wherever it is they came from. It doesn't necessarily mean back to their home country, but whatever, as far as the, the convention is concerned, back to whatever country they came from in the first place. In other words, we're seeing a lot of people from the, at the moment coming from the United Kingdom for fear that they will be deported to Rwanda. So they're now coming to Ireland. So that's why we're seeing an increase. We're also seeing an increase, as John rightly pointed out, that the minister in so many languages and social media invited people here. So we've seen the numbers going drastically from 2,500 in one year to 13,000 the following year. I think that was in 2022 after those social media tweets were put out. So John is saying we're inviting people here but for no specific reason. We should be inviting people here whose lives are in danger or as John said if they're gay in Afghanistan or women or people who are you know uh, the victims of political persecution but not you know everybody who wants a better life. That's not the way it works. Yeah, but just just to add, you know, I, I normally don't defend Minister Roger Gorman because I think a Green Party. I don't think anybody has defended. I don't think anybody's defended Minister Roger Gorman. <laughs> but Gorman just to make it clear, I don't think that tweet caused people to come to Ireland. If we look at when the Irish provision was created in 1999, the large increase was because the UK changed their immigration policy. So now we have the same thing happening again. The UK has changed their immigration policy, so a lot of people are afraid because of Rwanda. And Ireland is the next closest spot. And again, you, the right to seek asylum is universal. You can change your mind and say you want to seek asylum in France. So it's because of the immigration policy in the UK now. And you're going to see those numbers are going to increase. As Absolutely. The, the process come closer. Well, I, I, I think to quote, I, I, I spoke to Nigel Farage last week, and I'm sure he's not your friend. I spoke to Nigel Farage last week, and he said, unless the Irish government changes its policy, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because he's talked about numbers coming from across the Mediterranean and across the Channel have tripled in the last year and a half. So if those numbers have tripled into the UK, we are going to see a massive increase. So if we're looking at 20,000 now, we could be looking at 40,000 this time next year. So we need a better system and we need to find out who actually needs our help and support and who doesn't and who's just here for a better life. Because, Owen, we can't be the answer to the world's problems. We're a small country economically and geographically. And I, I understand that, uh, you know, the, the minister said, uh, Simon Coveney said many years ago, Ireland could withstand a population of 10 million people. And there is no or there's no doubt that we need people, particularly unskilled. And that's why they're talking about changing the visa criteria at the moment to work in hospitality, to work in retail, to work in all those things. And people should be allowed to work and do all those things. But we don't need a lot of people coming into Ireland who don't have the money to buy their own home and who will probably never have the money because we see what property prices are like in this country. If you're on minimum wage, it's out of your reach, which will eventually just become a drain on the system. That's not what we need. We can support some people, but not everybody. Again, we need a proper asylum system, you know, because like when we were campaigning, it was 10,000 was a lot of people for amnesty. And the government accepted 70,000 Ukrainians. So there is room for improvement, but the system must be improved, as John has been saying. You know, unless the system is approved, people will abuse it. So, and okay. you can't blame those people for abusing it because they want a better life. Well, no, I don't. And I've, and I've said on numerous occasions when I see protesters, you know, chanting out, 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 go home. I don't agree with that rhetoric because the, your, your protest should be at the government's door, not at the door of the refugees. Exactly. Okay, but John, getting getting to the protests then, John, because I, I'm conscious of your time, getting to the protests, do you accept uh, people, well, you do accept people's right to protest, of course, but the protesters on numerous occasions have been called right-wing racists or right-wing extremists, when we all know the majority of people who are protesting are people who are concerned, maybe misinformed as well, but concerned. There are some right-wing loonies in the middle of it all. 
I think the tell on that, the 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 the, the reason it's nonsense to call them right wing extremists in the main. I mean, I'm not disputing there there'll always be the one or two people who go to every protest in the country because this is their issue and they they follow around it. Maybe they are extreme on it. But that's not that doesn't represent the vast majority of people at these protests. And I think the tell on it is that these people, the protests are very rarely about national immigration policy. They're nearly always about this place isn't suitable. It's nearly always, could you not find somewhere in Donegal for them or whatever? They're not on the face of it, anti-immigration protests. And we haven't seen thus far any massive surge in the opinion polls for what one might term in inverted commas, an anti-immigration party. I suspect if things continue the way they are, that will change. But for the moment, the Irish people have been remarkably tolerant. But on these protests, I think it is an awful lot. And there is hypocrisy out here. Because if you think back last year to the tragic murder of Ashling Murphy, when we had a national conversation, a national debate, one of those things we do so well in Ireland about how the dangers men pose to women and how it's how women don't feel safe walking along their streets at night. Do you remember all that, Niall? I remember and all that, the, And, the, and the, 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 the way it can be threatening. And the, the hashtag was, in, she only went for a walk. That was the hashtag. She only went for a walk. How threatening it can be. And and we had, we had all the great and the good from Randall and Rathmines on, on RTE television telling us how unsafe they sometimes felt walking down the street at night. And then we have situations where you take very small rural communities, close-knit communities, sometimes urban communities that are close-knit, and you insert 300 um, men, and there's nothing to do with their nationality, because if they were if they were 300 white blokes uh, from the United States living in a hotel by themselves with nothing else to do, I suspect some of the women in the area might feel unsafe as well. And yet those concerns are suddenly immediately dismissed as racist and bigoted and right-wing and all the rest of it. When, when just a year ago, when white Irish women said they were afraid of white Irish men, they were progressive feminists. And now when you have working class women saying they're afraid of large groups of men being moved into their area. They are dismissed as being racist bigots. This is a class issue. It is nothing to do with racism, bigotry, anything else. It is a group of people in Dublin, in the media and in the leafier middle classes who really enjoy looking down on people with don't ha- that don't share their views okay. and really enjoy feeling morally superior and really enjoy saying you're a racist, you're a bigot if you don't like the very same things we don't like. So, so yeah, it's nonsense. Okay, so well then, Owen, finally, in relation to the protests, and I'm sure you've been watching them over the last, particularly the last eight or nine weeks, um, they seem to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they seem to be happening more often. Uh, what's your view on people protesting against the idea of, say, you know, and it is primarily men, Owen, I think we have to accept that, that are moved in, you know, at one o'clock in the morning in, in buses or whatever it is. What What's your view on people, you know, campaigning and stopping these buses going into accommodation? You know, all this, this protest, I think it's caused by Minister Roger Gorman department being a failure because there's no way that all these men arrive at the same time. Some women and children arrive as well. And they can make a composition when they're placed in asylum seekers and community by not just dumping men, you know. But again, they're not doing their job. In terms of from the community standpoint, I think people have a right to protest. But you know, to know you have to know where to protest and how to protest and the language that you use to protest in order not to be associated with racism. Okay, and even if the community was to come to Dublin and protest at the minister office, they will get the attention they need. Because you know the, the composition of the government now. One party needs votes in the next election. But so they, any w- 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 when you say there should be protesting at the dawn, I don't disagree with you inherently. 
But what they're protesting is because they don't want them in their community. And as John rightly pointed out, you know, we had a national debate about the safety of women. You have 300 guys coming into an area, middle-aged men coming into an area. It doesn't matter where they're from. They could be from Ireland, America, Afghanistan. It's irrelevant. Those women feel unsafe. That is their concerns. We can't deny their concerns. And they want to stop that from happening. So going to the doll is not going to stop it. But standing on the road in front of the accommodation might stop it. Well, blocking traffic is not going to stop it. It's actually legal to set up a roadblock. You know, as I say, you have a right to protest, but in the right manner. And I think the government will listen. You know, this government needs votes. Any group of people protesting now, any issue, the government will listen. So it depends on how you protest in order not to be associated with racism. I think but, a lot but of the gov- well, the government are getting it very wrong because, you know, up to last Sunday when the Red Sea poll came out, everybody was a right-wing racist who he decided to protest. Yet the, re- the-, the Red Sea poll says 75% of people agreed there was too many refugees in Ireland and 76% empathised and sympathised with those who were out protesting and understood their concerns. So the vast amount of people in Ireland, I'm not saying they support the protest, but they certainly understand why it's happening. Because well, I suppose it's not, not in their backyard. I mean, it's all well and good for me or somebody else in an ivory tower to sit there and go, oh, shame on you, you shouldn't be protesting. But as soon as it moves in next door to me, maybe I'll feel the same Everyone way as well. Protest. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, everyone's protest. But again, you have a right to protest, but you need to know the money in which you protest. Look at, I think it was about four years ago, Skillet Star, was Skillet Star Hotel. The whole community came out and protest against that hotel and no one was called racist. Because they used the right manner by getting the asylum seekers to say the accommodation was not suitable. And they protested together with the asylum seekers. And I think in Inch, there was an Inch and Claire, if they would have done the same thing, no one would have said they're racist. If they would have gotten the asylum seekers that didn't want to stay there, it was unsuitable to protest and block the road, then no one would have been saying that they're racist. But if you're using certain jargon, like I was saying, like religious. Uh, illegal refugees and all kind of propaganda terms that people use, then you might be associated with racism. Do you accept their concerns? Do you accept when 300 men move into a small community or move into a community that women in particular in the area have concerns? Do you accept that? Yeah, I do accept that it's wrong because, again, it's not 300 men came to Ireland in one go. There were women and children that came in the last six months they could have done a better composition in that community. They could have sent some children. They could have sent some women as well. Why dump 300 men I mean, or whatever? Okay, that, that's, a fair, well, that, that's a fair point, John. When we see these you know, busloads of middle-aged men uh, arriving at an accommodation, it's normally because the women have been given priority and put into accommodation first. The men have been out in City West or whatever it is, you know, yeah, in some point. big place, and then all popped onto a bus at the same time and moved out. So it's not like those 300 men just arrived in the airport the night before. That's not no, the case. I- Agree. No, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. I mean, uh, this is all comes back. But to that's the, the visual, the isn't it? That's the visual, the isn't it? That... It's the visual because I mean, I think it, it's also true to say that we have a disproportionate number of single men who apply for international protection. That is that is true, um, and that uh, that for me is always a bit of a red flag because if you are fleeing oppression, then it really should be males, females, and children equally, or perhaps even more. Uh, women and children. But I mean, I'm but assuming they come here. I, I assume they come here with the hope of family reunification afterwards. Yes, but if you were if you were in fear of your life uh, or of torture or of oppression, you might you might think an average man would want yeah, to get. Well, I, I wouldn't want course. to leave my wife behind. No, or my kids. Um, uh, anyway, uh, that, that, that's a separate discussion. Uh, but but Owen is right about the strategy here of of dumping big groups of men. And I mean, oftentimes, by the way, women and children don't have it any easier either, because we had a situation in Kerry last month with with a group of 
uh, Ukrainian women and children who'd been living in an area, gotten jobs, kids into school. And then all of a sudden, the department announced that they were all going to be moved after 18 months once they were settled 80 miles up the road to somewhere else, which was being told, oh, this is an asylum centre for women and children. Whereas the one that had women and children in it, they were all going to have their lives turned upside down a second time. So the department could shunt in a load of men. Uh, because once it was approved as an asylum system, sorry, as an asylum location, they were able to, in their mind, uh, do a little bit of a, a, a switcheroo. Um, so, yeah, the, the, it, it's so cynical. This is, I think, where Owen and I would agree most. It is so cynical. They treat people like pawns on a chessboard. It is literally where can we put these people that will cause the least fuss. And the actual people who they're moving around like pawns, I mean, they, they, there's no long-term consideration for those people's future. They are going to go into a hotel in Inch or in Longford or in Ballyshannon in Donegal or and be forgotten maybe about. in Ackle Island and be forgotten about until maybe somebody in five years' time goes, hey, how long are these people going to be living here? And then they might think about it again. It is just to get to the next election with the minimum possible amount of damage. It is, it, I mean, and, and one thing I agree with Owen on is that far too few of these protests are involving the people in this accommodation because they are being... I don't want to be. I don't want to be too much in agreement with Owen, but I'm. I'm in agreement with him on this. There are a lot of people in that system, and we've interviewed some of them on Grip Media, who are having a horrendous time in that accommodation, uh, and they are willing to say it's unsuitable as well. And I think some of these communities should probably reach the hand out across the divide and say, "Look, we know this isn't suitable for you. You know this isn't suitable for you. Join with us." I think that's a, a very constructive point, um, okay. be- because I don't think. The vast majority of people in Ireland are racist. That is is not the case. No, I, I, I don't. I don't believe right. that. And, and by the way, five percent of the population aren't. I, I want to say finally on that note: when we saw what happened in Pierce Street two weeks ago, where somebody set fire to the tents, um, the video the night before was a load of protesters uh, going over to the tents. Uh, one of the immigrants had come out of the tents, swung an iron bar at the protesters. The protesters beat him up. And when I looked at it, it was so sad. I felt sorry for everybody in that situation, for both the residents uh, who were driven to that and this young man from wherever country he was from swinging an iron bar at people because it's not their fault. It's the government's fault. It's bad policy that drives people against each other. And I think that's what's happening, that division in society. But just finally, oh, before I wrap it up, it would be remiss of me to not ask you the question as to why the majority of people seeking international protection are coming from countries uh, that are considered by t- on the tourism basis as safe countries. Georgia, Albania are top of the list. And yet, these are countries you could go on holidays to tomorrow. And they're perfectly safe countries. They may not be very wealthy countries when it comes to the locals and the people who live there. Uh, their economy mightn't be as good as Ireland uh, per head of population. But there's nothing wrong with these countries. People's lives are not really in danger. So it would be remiss of me to ask you, except that it's wrong that we have people coming from countries which are not dangerous. Okay, so again, the, not the, the only reason you can seek asylum is not because there's war in your country or many other issues. Let's say, for example, Albania, for example, you know, police brutality is... It's crazy in that country. You know, a lot of people seek asylum because they're fear of their life because of uh, police brutality. Georgia, for example. You could argue the same about the United States, depending on the color of your skin, I suppose. You had about about 10 10 persons from the U.S. seek asylum in Ireland, I think, last year. One guy died two years ago from the U.S. in direct provision. So again, it's not where you're from. Yeah, but there was a guy guy on Upfront on RTE last week from South Africa and his reason for being uh, seeking international protection in Ireland was he came here on a holiday, and his own words, he came here on a holiday, he liked it, so decided to stay. 
well, that's, 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 that's not a reason to seek asylum. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, again, the system does not permit for the case to be processed in three months. Because if you put that on your questionnaire, you are not going to get asylum in any country. Okay, you have to prepare. So, he, so, so you so, agree? He, so, you agree that he should be rejected, put on a plane, and sent back to his home country? No, I can't agree. The IPO needs to agree. You know, but no, I'm, ask, no, I'm asking. No, I'm asking you, Owen. Let's all be logical here, right? Because I think you know, in fairness to John, he's agreed with a lot of what you said, and I agree with a lot of what you said, and you agreed with a lot of what he said. So, let's be fair. A guy comes from South Africa on a holiday and says, "I like this country. It's great. I think I'll stay," and he applies to seek international protection. Um, he's going to be rejected, as you rightly says, if he puts that down on his form. Do you believe he should be sent back to South Africa? Well, if he's rejected, where is he going to go? <laughs> you know, if you, I'm if at, you uh, come on, oh, be fair. Then, I mean, it's not you can't no. have a free for all. It just can't be a no, free for all. Exactly. Seeking a, you can't seek asylum because you want to vacate. You want to have a vacation. Okay, so it's so so the, the one thing we will agree on, he should be sent home if his yeah, asylum exactly. is rejected. You know, it's okay. not a matter. His case should be processed. Okay. okay, the IPO needs to decide when he leaves. Okay, I can't okay, and, and you and you agree that if his case is processed and they reject it on the grounds that he's just a holiday maker who liked the country, you believe he should be sent home. Yeah, holiday is not a reason to seek asylum. Okay. Yeah, but, uh, and I'll just wrap it up yes. on this point because I think that that is a, that is an obvious and absurd case. But it comes back to what we were talking about at the very start of the conversation about deportation orders. Because if his case is rejected, as it should be summarily on that basis, a deportation order will be issued, and there is no agency of the state which will enforce it. So he can live here illegally, probably as long as he commits no crimes for the next 12 years, and then probably apply for, for an amnesty and stay. This is where the system is broken, and this is where it's undermining the confidence okay. of the public. I just think if you're, if you're deported, I mean, if, if you get a deportation order, the cops should march you to the plane, put you on it, and make sure and wave it, wave it goodbye as it takes off. Well, that's the what they do in most countries. They usually have two yeah, guards yeah, on the plane or whatever it is to make sure they don't get back right. off it again. Anyway, listen, thank you very much indeed, John McGurk, uh, Grip Media, and also Own Chance, chairperson of the ADPI no uh, Abolish Direct Provision Campaign. I appreciate both of you coming on the air today. Thank you very much indeed. No worries. Have a brand evening. Bye. Bye. Uh, now... Uh, I will take your comments, by the way, in relation to that. And I already have a lot of comments. You can text or WhatsApp at any stage, 85 uh, That's 85 Some of the comments coming in. Niall, in the US, at the southern border, they are putting asylum seekers into cages and centres where they are not allowed to roam free. So compared to Ireland's treatment of people, it's much better. Maureen says on Facebook, according to the Geneva Convention, refugees are entitled to shelter, food and water. Here we go. Uh, for sake, we have to change our policy. We are full. Uh, Tracy says he wants it all. Who funds all these, these legal bids? And Sarah Jane says we're not a charity. Okay, a lot of people obviously disagreeing with what Owen is saying, and some well, I suppose John agreed with and disagreed with some of what Owen says. Anyway, I want to move on, and I want to get your comments. Keep commenting. Keep sending your messages. Oh eight five one hundred twenty two fifty five. Now. Just getting back to something we covered there during the week, and this is abortion. And whether you know it or not, People Before Profit um, has defeated the government in a doll vote calling for wider access to abortion after the coalition TDs were given a free vote. The vote, by the way, last night was 74 to 61. And to give us the implications or tell us what the implications of that is, Eilish Mulroy, who is a spokesperson for Pro-Life Campaign, joins me on the line. Eilish, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Niall. Thanks for having me on the programme. 
Eilish, we, we spoke to you last week. We talked about the potential of this amendment happening. We didn't think it was going to happen so easily and so quickly. Last night, 74 to 61 votes. In the second stage, it now goes to the Oireachtas. This could become law before the end of the year. Um, what does it mean for abortion and for pro-life? What does it mean? Well, I think it's, it's obviously very disappointing. This is, to, just to be clear about it, it's a private member's bill. So it's, a, it's a private member's bill from five members of the Oireachtas. Um, so it was very unusual um, what happened last night. Um, the bill proceeded. So the bill is, is as you say, the, it, it calls for a wide-ranging abortion, abortion uh, effectively up until birth. It calls for the abolition of the three-day wait period that we've, that we've talked about on the programme before. Um, it calls for more abortion on the grounds of fatal fetal abnormality. So it's a widening across the board. A bill like that from a private member's bill normally uh, wouldn't proceed, on, uh, especially in the in the current context where the government has its own process happening with the abortion, with the three-year review of the abortion law. And what happened last night, I mean, through a series of, of uh, events, um, the government's um, amending a motion, which would have, been a bit, which would have delayed uh, the, the consideration of this bill for a year, was defeated. And I think that would have come as a surprise to many. Um, I mean, the, the, the chances of this bill and, and has, has been kind of acknowledged in some of the reporting in the, main, in the, in the national newspapers today, the chances of this bill uh, actually passing at final stage are slim because we have, we have the government will be, will be potentially uh, introducing some proposals uh, based on the outcomes of the three-year review. But it certainly is very disappointing. And I think that many voters, that it got as far as it did last night. And I think what, many, what, many people okay. who voted for yes in the abortion legislation or in the abortion referendum certainly would have expected um, a bill this extreme to get a pass by members of, members of the Dáil. Well, when it was voted for uh, in favour of by all the Green Party members, people before profit, um, with the exception of the party leader, Eamon Ryan, who chose to abstain. Uh, I have obviously, other ministers chose to abstain as well in relation to it. But for this, this term, uh, fetal viability, this is the one that kind of concerns most people. To you, what is the definition of fetal viability? Well, the whole thing is around the, the definition the, in the act of fatal fetal normality. You can't, it, it's very difficult for any doctor. Um, it's impossible, in fact, to diagnose and progno, you know, make a prognosis, um, an accurate prognosis on how long a baby will live. So the current legislation allows where two doctors are of the opinion that a baby won't live um, for more than 28 days after the baby is born, that abortion should be allowed up until birth in that situation. The bill that was voted on last night would extend that period um, to much longer. Um, well, it's an, it's to, an undefinable year, period. I, th- I, I thought it was undefinable. I mean, from what I was led to believe, it's an undefinable period. Also, what will it do to the 12 weeks? Um, this well, bill recommends extending that 12-week period. Uh, this is yeah, the reality, yeah. that's right. Well, the reality is that um, they want to extend the, the limits but and, and, and seek to criminalisation of abortion, which effectively, if you decriminalise abortion, and you have no criminal sanction in the law, which is what this bill has is calling for, um, that means that if there's no criminal sanction, that means abortion is going to be available up until birth because there is no criminal sanction against it. So it's it's a it's a really deeply concerning a situation that it has gotten so far. But the, the, but crimi- the criminal sanction aspect of it is well, according to some doctors, that they seem unclear. Now we had this before we had the abortion legislation and the referendum. The doctors seemed 
unclear. I'm unsure of why they're professionals if they seem unclear. But however, that doctors seem unclear that if it's 13 weeks, for example, and they got it wrong or the scan wasn't right and it was 13 weeks, that they tend, potentially could be criminalised up to 14 years in jail. Or indeed, if the viability was different to what they predicted, that they could spend 14 years in jail. And doctors say they don't want to take that chance, so they need to have that removed. Do you accept Can any you part of that? But if you look at abortion laws around the world, there's always criminal sanctions. You, you very, it's very seldom you would hear of a doctor um, being sanctioned under, 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 the, under the abortion law. I mean, in the British law, you have criminal sanctions and you still have over 200,000 abortions every year. So this is not, you know, it, it, I think that sometimes the impression is given that doctor, doctors will be thrown into jail. That's certainly not the case. And, and decriminalization simply means without sanction that you're leaving a situation where people can carry out abortions up until nine months of pregnancy. And that's what the authors, and it's really important that people realise that the authors of this bill do not believe in any gestational limits. And many of the people who are calling for abortion, and many, even the, in the health committee hearings yesterday around the abortion review, you have an awful lot of people who do not believe in gestational limits. And when people voted for the Eighth Amendment to be repealed, they certainly did not vote for, pe- for babies to be aborted up to nine months of pregnancy and, and all of and that's why but, the, but they did but but they did vote for that that's what they voted, they voted for, for but they voted no for they voted to repeal the eighth amendment i mean I, this what this is what blows my mind every single time and i remember discussing this after the eighth amendment was repealed with people who come on the air and i asked them you know did you vote yes or no and they said oh well yeah i voted yes you know provided it's only up to 12 weeks and it's only in certain cases of rape or fatal fetal abnormality and i said but that's not what you voted for what you voted for was to repeal the Eighth Amendment, to remove it from the Constitution, and then it's up to any government of the day to change those rules uh, as they see fit. So essentially, people, as far as I can see, if they didn't want abortion after 12 weeks and didn't want you know, the decriminalisation of doctors and didn't want all of these amendments, well, then they were duped. Well, you were right that people voted for it, and that's why during the campaign before the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, the people who were advocating a no vote were, were saying these kind of things will happen. I mean, we said the abortion numbers would rise massively. And they did. Uh, and those, those, that, was put, that was dismissed by the Yes campaign at the time. But at the same time, you have to remember that, you know, people are entitled to trust their politicians. And voters were given assurances from senior members of, of the government, as senior ministers on, on safeguards like the three-day wait period. I remember the, the, journal, the journal.ie did a fact check um, to you know, to disprove claims from the, the journal. That I have done a fact check on me three times at this stage, and all three times <laughs> I stand, I stand by everything I said, and even the the conclusion of those fact checks was what I said was actually factually correct, but they just didn't like me anyway. Uh, so, well, I mean, <laughs> look, the reality is that we need to have a discussion around how the media treats this issue. Certainly, the media covered even in the last couple of days. But, you know, the reality is that voters were entitled to trust politicians and it's about accountability. But why am I hearing it in the media? Why, you know, why is it not constantly on the media over the last three or four days when we had a vote last night on it? uh, You know, so people could lobby their local politicians, etc., etc. And we are going to have another vote on it, obviously, as well. It will have to go to the Oireachtas and it has to go to a third stage. But, I mean, realistically, if it's voted for, it could be in before the end of the year, depending on the president and when he's willing to sign it. So realistically, why aren't we talking about it more in the media? Why aren't people being made aware of what is actually happening. It's almost like it's happening under the cloak of night. Well, it's a good question. I mean, the the vote last night came up very quickly. Again, the private member's bill likely won't ever come to fruition. Um, But but of more concern is what happened at the Health Committee yesterday and some of the governments, some of what the the Health Committee were proposing, which are very extreme recommendations. But I think that the biggest thing is that 
all of this is going to really prompt people to rethink their stance on the issue. And many, many yes voters already are expressing, I even saw some you know, fairly high profile people on Twitter saying this isn't what I voted for. I never thought this was going to happen and that it would become this extreme. So I think that, you know. Well, you know what, I don't, I, I'm sorry for being smart and interrupting, but I don't feel sorry for them. Because they were told that at the start. Everybody who voted yes, and some voted yes for their own reasons, and that's fine. But those who were in the middle, who were sitting on the fences, and were convinced to vote yes because of certain conditions and criteria, the red herrings, as some people call them, and they went and voted yes. I, they've no one to blame but themselves, because that's exactly what they were told. I mean, they should have known. I mean, it's up to yourself. When we have a referendum in this country, it's up to you to educate yourself on that. And, you know, there's debates on TV or whatever else. Some of those debates, I believe, are very one-sided, but however, they were on TV and everything. So you voted to remove the Eighth Amendment, to repeal the Eighth Amendment. You voted for nothing else. So whatever happens after that is your own fault. And I don't mean that well, to you, by the way. Well, I mean, I agree with you to a certain extent, but at the same time, you can't expect everyone to be able to inform themselves on every aspect. I mean, it's a responsible thing to do, but you can't expect everybody to have the time or the capacity to do that. And that's why they should be able to rely on assurances that are given to them from these from politicians. Like we've had nearly 30,000 abortions in the first four years of this abortion law, when politicians during the debates and on television and on media debates said, uh, dismissed claims that the abortion that the abortion numbers would rise. would rise. In all of the discussion of the last few days, I've heard I haven't heard one politician who's looking for these extreme abortion laws talk about supports for women in unplanned pregnancy and looking after people and trying to help people and you know you know ensure women aren't coerced into abortion and you know those kind of um kind of how many women? How many women are actually going to the UK? But according to Paul Murphy's crew, who were standing outside the doll the other day, there was a numerous amount of women who are still going to the United Kingdom because they're not within the twelve-week period. Do we have numbers for how many women are deciding to have an abortion after that twelve-week period and still travelling to the UK? Yeah, we have numbers for the first three years of the abortion law. So we have numbers from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty one, and in that period, there was seven hundred and seventy five women who travelled to the UK uh, to Britain. Rather, that could also be. A lot of those abortions um, are abortions. As, as Professor Fergal Malone told us, the master at Hollis Street, uh, 95% of people, a large percentage, who um, have diagnosis of um, Down syndrome in the womb are travelling to Britain. Um, on their doctors, uh, uh, well, the anecdotal uh, evidence mm. is that often doctors would suggest to people that they can travel to England for those kind of abortions. So I think when we hear about women travelling, we have to also remember that, that a lot of the time that's babies with disabilities. And I, I really don't think that's something that, okay. we sh- that we should be condoning. No, absolutely not. Well, listen, we shall keep an eye on it and I appreciate you coming on the air and talking today and give us a bit of an update. Eilish Mulry is a spokesperson for Pro-Life Campaign. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, uh, Let me go to John if I can. John O'Dean, not a happy camper. Uh, John, how are you doing? You're, uh, you're on the Nile Boyle podcast. Hi, how things now? Um, look, just another nail on the coffin, if you pardon the fun of the unborn again, getting closer and closer to the agenda, this evil satanic agenda out there that um, basically the child will not be safe at any stage right up to birth. And this is like, like the t- when you have a private member's bill, getting this high-profile coverage, right, in the doll and outside the doll, right, I've never in the history of following the proceedings of politics in this country ever seen a private member's bill get so much high-profile and so much attention. The tail is now wagging the dog, just like the Greens wagging the, everything else in the country and affecting all our livelihoods, right? But, I mean, this idea... 
that the Irish people, like, I mean, and you've berated many people in your programme. I've been on the same, same some nights when you were also berating them, when you had clowns coming and saying, well, I didn't vote for abortion on demand, and as that lady has said there, and you have said also, if you went out in the cold light of day, you want to be the thickest person on the planet now. Uh, if you're saying, oh, I didn't analyse the bill, I didn't understand the bill. It was simple. You were asked either to leave the protection of the, for the unborn in the Constitution or removing it. And by voting for to remove it, all protection was taken away. Well, do you, do you accept what I said, that, that not everybody had the time to go out and look up, you know, exactly what it meant and what the legislation meant, you know, that not everybody had that time. But mind you, I said I, it so many times on the air. I don't know why. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't agree with that because simple reason, like I knew it was about the very word, the very word said it all, abortion. You were either going to vote for or against abortion. The thickest person on the planet could see that. No but but, but, but I, did, I did have a guy on the air three weeks after the referendum and I, I always remember his call. And he, he said to me, I just said to him, did you vote yes? And he said, yeah, I voted yes. And I said, well done. I said, that's what you wanted. And I said, you know why you voted yeah. yes? And he said, oh yeah, I voted yes to allow women to have an abortion if they were raped or fatal fetal abnormalities. I said, that's not what you voted yeah. for. And he says, oh, yeah. no, that's all, that's all. He said, I don't agree with abortion under any other circumstances. And I said, well, then you're I, tick. Because yeah, that's not I what remember, you voted I remember, for. I, yeah. I remember that night I was actually on the very same programme and I, I berated him as well. I mean, because he said he voted, he was against abortion and demand. I don't believe but people are that stupid. I don't, I actually don't believe, I mean, when you have a referendum, you have a duty and a civic duty and a responsibility to find out what you're voting for. And any referendum that will ever come in the future, past referendums and referendums to come, will never be as serious or as high profile as that. That was a referendum to decide now whether people lived or died. And just like Pontius Pilate, when you try to wash the blood off as a gesture that when you sentence Jesus Christ to death, right, he could be washing forever. He'd never take that stain away. And the well, Irish well, people who okay. voted for abortion will never wash that stain away. Okay, Leo Varadkar did say only last week that he would be uncomfortable to change any aspects of the law at this moment in such a short period of time. That doesn't mean yeah. he won't want to do it in a couple of years' time. But at this moment in time, which may give some level of protection or some reassurance. But when I see a vote 74 to 61, and this is, as you say, a private member's bill, and, you know, the Green Party voted, some people abstained for it, uh, all the Green Party voted for it, people before profit, and it mentions a load of other people who voted for it too. I worry that this will go yeah. through before the end of the year, but stay there if I want to go to James. Um, and by the way, just to be 100% sure that you know this, um, for the show every single day, we text a lot of people beforehand, we send messages through Twitter, we send emails to people, we did that this week, and when we talked about abortion last week, we gave the opportunity to pro-choice campaigners to come on the air as well. They always refuse. And I'll tell you why they refuse is because they don't need to come on, because their side is winning. Isn't that really it? And if they come on, they could just make a mess of it and make it worse. So they don't come on with us. Let me just go to James. James, how are you doing? You're in Ireland. Or you're not in Ireland, let's get it all. You're on the Nod Boiling Podcast. How are you doing, James? Afternoon, you know, God, you, you, that's oh, just ingrained in your brain. Oh, I swear to God, it's like brainwashing, isn't it? Uh, anyway, not that that's a bad thing. But anyway, James, I mean, this to a lot of people is a bit of a red flag now. It looks like, you know, this is a private member's bill. That doesn't mean anything, but it now has to go to the House of the Rockers. It's a second stage. I mean, this could go through. It's scary, Niall. When, when, when the referendum came up, I sat down, I watched all the debates. And the one thing that sticks in my mind was I remember a young girl 
who said she went to Birmingham and um, that particular day she'd had an abortion that morning for because she was told the child would not survive. And then she was left walking around Birmingham with a hot water bottle around her tummy. I remember that story. Yeah. And I remember that the two people who were on the pro-life side was Senator Ronan Mullins and Cora Sherlock. Mm-hmm. And I remember Ronan Mullins made a comment to her, like, I'll pray for you. And I remember that was like a red rag to a bull for a lot of people. But I remember Carla Sherlock saying, I'm sorry that has happened to you. So she showed a lot of sympathy and empathy towards the woman. So, you know, I was looking at all the debates now and I listened to everything. And, you know, I said to myself, OK, it's up to 12 weeks. I'm not comfortable about this. I'm not, but what would happen if the situation happens to either my two daughters or to any woman I know? And that's why I voted yes. And then when but, but I wait, saw but, this but surely, night, James, you're an intelligent man. You were aware when you voted yes that you weren't voting for twelve weeks. I know, Niall. When 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 as I said, they said it could be up to I kinda of looked at it and I said it could be up to that. It could be up to twenty two weeks and then it could be right up to birth. To birth. <laughs> and you know but maybe uh, maybe like Probably a lot of the people now who vote, probably 20% of the people who voted yes, probably have have feel. Like maybe we kind of put too much faith in the government. Maybe we said, okay, maybe they will do the right thing on this. But it just shows now that, you know, and I, I would say... Well, I mean, if they, if they take away the, the criminal way. aspect of this, if, which is what they're demanding, if they take away the criminalization of doctors who operate outside the realms of the legislation, well, then it's yeah. a free-for-all. Then literally a woman could go in the day before she's due to give birth and have an abortion. Yeah, what what if she what if a woman is six months in and has three boys and has been told that she's having a girl or she's having another? Well, they boy do that in the UK already. Told, they do that in the UK. Yeah, so so they, if you're and I've seen the amount of cases in the UK. Here's one that blows my mind: somebody who's pregnant on twins and they don't want twins; they only want one, and they yeah. will go in and have one of the uh, fetuses terminated. But you, do you know what really sickens me about the whole thing, Niall? And I'll take the, the two people who seem to be really cheerleading this. Reed Smith, okay, and Paul I Murphy. And Paul Murphy, I know, has been yeah, people before profit. Okay, well, I'll yeah. come. I'll come to Paul Murphy. Well, I, I, I don't want you to talk about them directly because, of course, they're not on the show to to, to defend themselves. But I, it's okay to say that both of those, including people, are part of people before profit who are defending this. Okay, bill. yeah. Well, the, okay, I have to be careful how I put it. Well, you know, for a woman that has had a, an abortion herself, this to me. Well, she now probably wants to just vindicate herself in this. Okay. Well, I don't, like, again, well, I don't know. She's not on the show to talk about it. So. Okay. But, but let's start with me. No. I mean, I, right? Yeah, I, I know Paul only had a baby recently as well. And I always wonder, you know, people who've just had a child, you know, does it make any difference to their views in relation to abortion? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But let's, well, let's, exactly. but let's focus just directly on people for a profit if you can, James, just generally speaking. Okay, well, well, well you know, God, well... Last night when I saw, like, the glee coming from these people with this, and one of these certain people that just recently had a baby, has been trying for a baby for years. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it amazes me. Like, you know, you'd think he would be a lot more sympathetic to people who were going through this, considering the position of him and his partner, Dash wife, have been going through for the last couple of years. Mm. I know, no, I, I, know I, I understand the way you feel about that, and some people would feel like that, but some people, I suppose, they just think differently when it comes to it. But anyway, it is their bill. And uh, the government were embarrassed, obviously, because they were defeated on this last night. I mean, the government didn't believe they were going to be defeated. It would have been just whitewashed out, and that would have been the end of it. Well, but it, but, it, but it's now this. being taken seriously. I don't like, and I generally don't like the whip system, Niall. But I think last night the whip should have been used on this. Like, I think the, you know, the, the party whip should have called around and said, well, look, as I think John O'Dea has just said there, the tail is wagging the dog here with regards to the Green Party. 
the, the current government are so, so desperate to stay in power. They will let the Greens do anything, absolutely anything. And the fact that all the Greens, bar Eamon Ryan, voted for this, it just shows that... You well, know, he, well, he only abstained, by the way. He didn't say yay or nay, he just abstained. Well, we, we know, Niall, we know where he leans. I'm not even going to comment on the man because he's not on to answer himself. Everybody knows what way he leans. He, he just commented, he just abstained on that to save his own ass. Now, come hopefully the next general election, the Green Party will be wiped out and we'll never have to hear from them again. They can go off and eat their tofu sandwiches and <laughs> sit, sit in the sun for the rest of their life. Okay, but, they, but, but, that, but, but an election may not be called before this actually goes through as part of legislation because, of course, people for profit and other people who have an interest in this uh, want this pushed through. They don't want this to go past the end of the year. They want this pushed through sooner rather than later. And, John, well, I, you know, you know I, I, I can see you being very disappointed, John. Yeah, unfortunately, but I mean, again, as I said, look, when I, there was a stalling tone last week in Parker, and I just handed out some stuff for a key code again, the same characters, and I handed it back. I said, look, I'm, I don't believe in kidding, murdering children like you guys. But the thing is, I was talking to other pro-lifers, I met on the street who were commenting, and as I said, look, it's one thing all the parties back to Boston are still pushing it, right? I said, our biggest enemy, look who they are. And they said, who's that, John? I said, Patrick see just packed the same day last night. They said, all those people walking up and down there. How many of those people voted against us and against the unborn child? There's our real enemy. Okay, well, hang on for a second. Let me just go as well, if I can, to Tony. Tony, how you doing? You're on the Nile Boylan podcast. All right, Niall. How are you today? How you doing, Tony? Uh, Tony, I mean, I don't know if you're pro-life, pro-choice. I couldn't tell you. But I know, you, I know you have grandchildren. Yeah, but just like I, yeah. And I like, the opinion I have it's yep. just it's going to get pushed further and further. Okay, it was 12 weeks at the start, but yeah, but just like the people you have pushing it in Ireland, this is what I'd be saying about, yeah, but just like it's a lot of things, like they have no children, like them people who are pushing this and wanting it to go further and further, they have no children, they've never experienced I don't, uh, I don't know, I, I, but that's, that's not true, Tony, because I, the va- a vast amount of the ones who are voting for this, uh, I'm not talking about the people who are campaigning. No, I'm not about people... voting for it, Noel, that's pushing it further and further. But they do, some of them do have children. It could go up to 22 weeks, 24 weeks, 26 weeks, a day before the birth. Yeah, but, but some, some of these people do have children. Yeah, well, no, I've never come across them. Well, Paul Murphy is the one who's pushing this bill. He's just had a baby. He doesn't know whether he has a boy or a Oh, girl. but that's he irrelevant. Doesn't... That's irrelevant. Well, he does know, but he just doesn't want to say. That's irrelevant. But I'm just saying he does have a baby. He's just had a baby. So to suggest they de- they don't have children is wrong. It's incorrect. They want to have a happy and healthy baby boy, and you're describing it as... Okay, that's, that's a whole different issue. In that. I'm not getting into that today, Tony. We spent a lot of time talking about that before. Tony, did you when you when you voted, did you know what you were voting for? Yes. So what were you voting for? Yeah, I didn't for? vote for abortion. I didn't vote for abortion. I know, yeah. I, against for, the eighth, for the Eighth Amendment to stay there. Okay. But, but when you were voting, were you aware of what repealing the Eighth Amendment actually meant? Because some people believe they weren't aware of it. Oh, well, no, they're blind. If they're doing that like that, it's such an ignorant vote. If they're doing that, if they're just voting for to repeal the Eighth Amendment and they don't know the consequences or the possible consequences of it, well, then they shouldn't have voted. Is that a fair point, like, Jane? Well, 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 no, well, hang on, now. well, hang oh, on. I didn't know that this had happened. Like you're, dealing with, like, you're dealing with people before profit and people like that. 
Well, well, let me go back to James. James, a lot of people still saying that. Now, I know you voted yes, and, and your heart told you to do it in certain circumstances. Mm. But, but again, I say to you, your intelligent man, as Tony rightly says, you had to have known what you were voting for, and you had to have known at some point the legislation was going to change and be more liberal. Everybody said it. Yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe I was naive, Niall. Maybe I was, you know, maybe, but I think a lot of people might have, you know, we've heard these horror stories of, you know, women who who get pregnant, who want children, and then after, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16 weeks, you know, the child is just not going to survive, and the child is not going to oh, have I know. any sort of life outside. And I think that's where, that's probably where my vote leans towards, if you know what I mean. That's yeah. probably why I made that decision, because I probably looked at, you know, my own two daughters, and I said, well, what would happen if, if one of my kids came to me at the age of 25 and said, Dad, you know, um, I am pregnant, but the child is not going to survive, and what can I do? And maybe, you know, that's what I would think. And maybe, you know, it sounds like basically I was naive. Again, I'll maybe, you know, when I when I heard them talking about the three days and, and the 12 weeks, like maybe that's, you know, I should have looked a bit more on it, but... I think I think there's probably tens of thousands of people that probably feel the same, and I'm, I think there's okay. a lot of. I put it to you this way, Niall. If they, yeah, if they ask me today the well, same Niall. question, the answer will be no. Sorry, Tony. It was the wording. There was the wording of it. Straight up, I probably would have voted differently if the wording had to be in the girl is right, or if it's incest, Stephen, or if it's fetal abnormalities. Yes. But not across the board, no. For to but that was, that was a suggestion at the time. The suggestion at the time, the wording of the Constitution should have been changed. They were pushing, yeah. saying, oh, if the girl is raped and things like that. And obviously, and obviously, like, that went into people's heads and people was thinking, well, what if it was my daughter or what if it was my yeah, sister no, I know, I know. who was raped and things like that. And I would fully agree 100% if the girl is raped and she becomes pregnant, She's fully entitled to an abortion. If it's fetal abnormalities, that's a child that's not going to have a life. Yes. Yeah. But not just willy-nilly 40,000 abortions. So, say, well, well, stay there. Let me go to Maureen as well. Maureen, how are you doing? Just finally, you're on the Live Island podcast today. How are you doing, Maureen? Good afternoon, Ryan. How are you? Uh, Maureen, were you disappointed with the vote last night, the private, mem- private members' bill in the doll? Well, yeah. Um, well, you're not surprised uh, by it, yeah. are you? No, not at all. I could see that coming in my lot. Hmm. That's more. That's more blood to be spilt in this country. Look, Niall, um, you you said something that was interesting. You said that people shouldn't vote if they have no clue what they're voting for, or uh, you said they should look up what they're voting for. Exactly. Mm. They have a duty and to learn that, about yeah. it. Of course, but they don't. We were on the campaign down here in West Cork two years before that referendum, and there was thousands spent on literature, tending people, information. And a couple of months before it actually came in, we were up and down to Cork, taking these big posters and up on ladders, putting them up on lampposts. Nobody can say they didn't know what they were voting well, for. Well, they are saying they didn't know. That's what they're well, saying they're now. Idiots. I mean, you've they're heard Irish Mulroy saying there that pe- high-profile people who voted yes now said they feel duped. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they feel duped. Yeah, sure they do. That's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. They well, James is on the line. James, James, in fairness, James on the line, he's a nice guy. I know him a long time. And he's, you know, he's common sense. And he does feel a bit duped. He feels duped? Well, then he should have taken the time to actually read, if he saw the literature from our side, the pro-life campaign. It was all explained there. There was billboards all over the country. There was huge billboards, now that cost thousands, were ripped down. 
Because they're pro-choice, but they're not pro-choice, they're pro-birth, they're pro-abortion. They didn't want to look at the reality of what would happen in this country. It was fine when all these pictures, you're not seeing the pictures, you're not seeing the reality of a child being murdered. And this bill, and we told people, they can go all the way to birth. They can do what Governor Cuomo did in New York. He legalized infanticide, which means the parents have four weeks to decide after their baby is born, do they want that child or not? Is that where we're going to go? I will, I hope so. You bet your life it is. Well, I certainly hope not, but I certainly up to the up to the point of birth to remove the criminalisation, James, is very concerning. Uh, because, as Eilish said, in every country almost in the world, there is criminalisation within law on abortion, depending on the circumstances. But, you know, to remove the criminalisation, which allows free reign to a doctor, I'm not suggesting that women are going to go and have an abortion the day before they're due to give birth. I doubt that happens very rarely. Um, but in saying that, just to allow that is bizarre, James. And... That was all said, James, before the referendum. And I know you think you've, you feel a little bit duped in the whole thing, but it was all said. Yeah, no, no, that is true. That is true. But as I said, maybe, you know, the way I looked at it was, you know, you know, I, I, was, I was obviously not allowed to think more with my heart than I was with my head on this. And as I said, I'm sure, you know, there's probably people laughing to think guys are a fool, but I'm sure there's tens of thousands of people oh, are absolutely. saying, you know what? We made that we, you know, like well, well, they, said, tr- well, I, they trusted the government. The trial, they trusted the government. And like, I, like I would, be, I would be very much in the centre on this now. I, I, you know, I, I would not, you know, say say I'm pro-life or pro-choice in any way. I just, you know, you heard this, you know, trust women. Women won't use this as forms of contraception. Blah 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 blah. You know, this is this is what but they was, did. Was, but was, they did, and they are. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm, and, I'm not suggesting and, I don't trust women. I do trust women, generally speaking. Yes. but there are women who will who will obviously use the law. Yeah, but like you know, them, there, is the there isn't that many. But I, you know, I I, I trust women, Niall. You know, man. Like, but I kind of looked at this and like my thinking of it was that, as as someone else has mentioned, like if a girl gets raped, if there's an incest, you know what I mean. If something like that, or if it's a fatal feat and abnormality, trying to get me uh, tongue around it. You know, that's probably where I was more thinking. That's where, you know, having seen, hearing these stories of these people who wanted babies, not just, you know, people who were raped. These were people who had, you know, had gone into relationships or, you know, had got pregnant and wanted these children. Well, and well seemingly, whatever it's, seemingly it's only a baby if you want it. If it's not, if, it, if you don't want it, it's a fetus or a clump of cells. It's a, a, lumber, a clump of cells. Yeah, like that's, uh, okay. you know, and... Maureen, Maureen, do you accept, Maureen, well then what's the solution, Maureen, or if you, or do you accept that people trust, I mean, look, they vote for politicians, they are supposed to be the people who run the country, they are supposed to be able to give you the correct information, they trusted politicians to give them the correct information, and the politicians during that particular referendum, the vast majority were telling people to vote yes, based on, here is the law we're going to propose and put forward for this, so there is protection there, and they believed them. Of course they believed them. Of course they believed them because they saw the politicians that they voted for out actually telling people what to do. In, I, I always thought, can I correct me if I'm wrong, I always thought they were supposed to stay out of it and leave it to the people. Well, no, I mean, I, they, they can campaign on either side. But uh, by the way, my thoughts on that is, and I've done shows on it, I believe that politicians and referendums should remain neutral. And impartial. Of course they should. Yeah, course absolutely. They should. Because look, when I'm on radio, not on this podcast, obviously, but when I'm on radio, I have to be impartial. Yes. You know, yes, so. Yes, you do. You have to take two sides. Yes, well, you have to mm. listen to two sides. But the thing is, you see, 
even on now, I don't have RT, but I, I am known and people would maybe put up clips of stuff that were on. Thank God I don't have that poisonous channel. <laughs> but anyway, us, the pro-life. The, the, the pro what? I mean, where were our voices? Every time there was a debate, they were absolutely shut down or they weren't invited on. But you see what you so know what you, but you know what's going to happen now. To the media are inviting pro-choice people on the air, and they won't come on now. And the reason they won't oh, come well, on is because they, they don't need well, they don't need to. No, they don't. They you know they all scuttled back under the rock that they came out of. Because they know if they go on the air, if I could get somebody on uh, from pro-choice, they know they lose the argument and they know they look bad and it's going to be bad for them going forward to try and amend this legislation. Listen, Tony, uh, James, Maureen, listen, thank you very much indeed. Some of the comments, by the way, coming in. Joanna says people were lied to and are being lied to daily by the government and the mainstream media about everything. In other words, don't trust them at all. Uh, Martina says, uh, if we are going to have extreme sex agendas in school, show abortions to teenagers. And that would certainly do it, all right. Sarah says, I wonder what the outcome would be if we had another vote for the public to vote for abortion. I'd say it'd be a different outcome. And she'd be sure of that. I think if they were given the proper information, there would have been a different outcome. I think it would have been very close, to be honest with you. Um, lots of comments agreeing with John O'D, by the way. John is correct. States in the US and New Zealand have slowly pushed out timeless uh, to allow abortion up to birth. And I know the uh, previous Prime Minister... Uh, of New Zealand obviously was in favour of abortion up to birth. Not that, by the way, I, I'm not going to suggest it's a red herring, but it doesn't happen too often that somebody would go for an abortion the day before birth, by the way. Uh, lots of people um, uh, want Paul Murphy on to answer. And Aaron on WhatsApp says, Niall, I would see the new abortion bill to expand a woman's rights to have an abortion. And at the end of the day, if a woman really wants to have an abortion after 12 weeks, she is going to get one by travelling to the UK anyway. So is it not better to allow doctors to treat her here? You can be pro-life, but also respect a woman's right to have an abortion. Well, you can't, to be honest with you, Aaron. You can't be pro-life and respect a woman's right to have an abortion. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't, because if you're pro-life, why would you respect a woman's right to have an abortion? That's like saying... You know, I'm pro-theft, or I'm against theft, but I respect other people's right to steal. You, you, that doesn't make sense. And the idea that just because somebody's going abroad to the UK that we should make it legal here is a dumb argument, with the greatest respect to you, Aaron. There are countries in the world of an age of consent of 14. Does that mean we should have an age of consent of 14 because people might travel there to get married and have sex? No, of course not, because they're pedos. So we are not going to change the law. Just because other countries change the law, other countries have laws that would be more liberal than ours, doesn't mean we have to do the same thing. That would be a stupid society, wouldn't it? Because then we're bringing in legalizing illegality for the sake of it, just because they're doing it somewhere else. Anyway. Thank you very much indeed for all your comments, all your calls. Sorry we couldn't get to everybody. We'd love to, but we had a long debate at the start in relation to the refugee crisis. So we kind of took up a little bit of time, so I do apologize for that. We'll try our best going forward to give you a little bit more time to get more callers on. We will probably extend the show a little bit further because it's becoming so popular now. Thank you very much indeed. And I appreciate everybody downloading it and watching it live on the stream every single day. Don't forget, if you want us to ever discuss a topic, the best way to do it is to WhatsApp us. We always get your WhatsApp messages. We will reply. If we've time to do the topic, we'll call you or we'll WhatsApp message you back again and we'll ask you to come on. And it's 85 That's 85 100 2255. Don't forget, we take down the stream after every single show. We delete the stream, but we put it back up on our website and you can watch it in the comfort of your own home whenever you feel like it, right there. You can watch the show or you can just listen to the audio only. If you go to the website, there are two or three pages of podcasts. One is for video, one is for podcasts or just for audio and one is a premium section, which we will be developing over the next month or so. 
what will happen is we will have extended interviews. We will have shows that won't be available for free. But don't forget, this show, every single day, streaming will be available for free. Always will be. We want to make sure of that. But do us a favour, if you get a chance and you want to help us and support us, go to the website and click the membership section and give us a five for a month. It's only the price of a pint of beer, price of a coffee, expensive coffee, mind you, yeah, if you're going to Starbucks. But it's like bringing me into a pub and saying, Niall, you did a good show this week. Here's a beer for you, even though I don't drink. That's what it's like. So do that. If you want to do, if you're watching on Twitter now, you can do that by just going up to the top up there and clicking the follow and then subscribe button. And that just charges you a fiver a month. You don't, at the moment, we don't have anything extra for you. We're asking you to do it for us. But very soon, and over the coming weeks, we will have subscriber-only content. We will have premium member-only content, which, if you're a subscriber, you will get on both Twitter and on our website as well. So please subscribe, go to the website and subscribe and support us to make the show bigger and better. And we can do more of it. Trust me. I'm Niall Boylan. That's about it. I'll talk to you again tomorrow at 12 o'clock. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085-100-2255. The Niall Boylan podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms. 